This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 283rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. On this episode, we have another installment of Haunted Cemeteries. This is number 12, and we'll be visiting several cemeteries. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spooktacular crew, Amy, Ashley, Stephanie with an IE, Al, Mary, Carmen, and Rudy. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. Tree stump gravestones were popular for a 20-year period from 1885 to 1905. Many cemeteries in the Midwest used them because limestone was plentiful and the tradition of stone carving was a fine art. The trees were meant to look as if a tree stump had been used to mark a grave and symbolize a life cut short. This was very true for Charles F. King, who died when he was only 26 years old. He was killed in 1893 at Jonesboro, Arkansas, in a train wreck on the St. Louis, Arkansas, and Texas Railway. What is weird is that this accident is actually depicted on his gravestone. There's a train engine and then another rail car flipped on its side. I've never seen a car accident depicted on a marker or someone clutching the heart from an attack. Causes of death are usually not visibly depicted on a stone. But as I came to find out this week, this gravestone is not unique. There's another, and here's where that little synchronicity that happens around here all the time creeps in. I found the King gravestone while searching for haunted cemeteries. A few days later, I was researching Bohemian National Cemetery for a Stones and Bones bonus cast and stumbled across a picture of a headstone there for Matej Sidlow that is also a tree stump, and it depicts Sidlow's death due to a train as well. This carving shows a train hitting a beer wagon. Sidlow was 40 years old and was riding on a beer wagon owned by the E.R. Stieg Brewing Company when it was struck by engine number 590, belonging to the CB&Q Railroad Company, throwing him from the wagon. What are the chances that two tombstones depict deaths by train and that I would find them in the same week. All I know is that certainly is odd. Get out. And now, this month in history. In 
In the month of November, on the 19th, in 1939, construction of the first presidential library began. This library would belong to President Franklin D. Roosevelt. He laid the cornerstone next to his home in Hyde Park, New York. Roosevelt had donated the land, but public donations funded the building of the library, which was dedicated on June 30, 1941. Roosevelt noticed that he had a vast quantity of papers and other materials that he and his staff had accumulated during the first two terms of his presidency. He also knew that in the past, many presidential papers and records had been lost, destroyed, or ruined. He asked historians and scholars for their advice, and they all came up with the idea of a public repository of some sort. This began a tradition that continues to this day. There are currently 14 libraries in the presidential library system. These libraries are not like other libraries in that they are archives and museums that bring together the documents and artifacts of a president and his administration and present them for the public to study and discuss. As I continue to roll out these new episodes in the Haunted Cemetery series, it never ceases to amaze me just how wrong I was in thinking that there were very few haunted cemeteries. After all, I surmise that spirits would want to be among the living with all of our energy and not hanging out with a bunch of dead people. But clearly, there are a few who do. I tend toward believing that most graveyard ghosts are residual, and perhaps that's why I've managed to find so many of them. On this episode, we're going to explore cemeteries in Erie, Pennsylvania, cemeteries in Iowa, Oddfellows Rest in New Orleans, and Riverside Cemetery in Asheville. Join me on this journey through the history and haunts of these graveyards. Cemetery is located in Erie, Pennsylvania, of course, and was established in 1851. The graveyard is laid out over 75 acres and is found at 21st and Chestnut Streets. There are around 50,000 burials, and these include General Strong Vincent, Daniel Dobbins, and Sarah A. Reed. Within this graveyard, one will find over 165 years of funerary art. It's another one of those beautiful garden cemeteries that we have here in America, and burials still continue here today. General Strong Vincent was fatally wounded at the Battle of Gettysburg on Little Round Top. He wrote to his pregnant wife on the way to Gettysburg, If I fall, remember that you've given your husband to the most righteous cause that ever widowed a woman. Today, there's a statue of him at Gettysburg on top of the 83rd Pennsylvania Infantry Monument. There's no identification on the statue because it was against Pennsylvania Battlefield Commission rules to place an image of a regiment's commanding officer on a monument, but it is his likeness, not a random officer. He was buried at Erie Cemetery, and sadly, his wife gave birth to a baby girl, and she died shortly thereafter, and she's buried right next to him. He was a hero, and it took five days for him to pass away. And during that time, he was given the honor of Brigadier General, but nobody thinks that he actually knew that he was given that because he was never conscious to find out. 
Sarah A. Reed was a founding member of the group who formed the Association for Improving the Conditions of the Poor and a Home for the Friendless. They opened the Children's Center in 1871 as a place to help orphaned and homeless children. Sarah served as president for 45 years from 1889 until her death in 1934. The center was named for her after her death. There are two unique burials here that are steeped in legend. The first is dealing with the Brown Crypt, or what has been nicknamed the Vampire Crypt, and it is a very cool structure. The final resting place of the Goodrich family is a mausoleum carved from a ridge. It's a beautiful Gothic structure, but quite plain, with no typical stained glass window or even a name on the outside. There's a strange V-like carving above the entrance as though lettering has fallen away. The front gate is hewn from wrought iron, and eerily the granite from which the crypt is made has blackened. No other structures near it have done so. The actual owner of the mausoleum is Gertrude Brown, and that's why it's called the Brown Crypt, but she's not buried within, more than likely because I believe she's still alive, and she's the last heir. Most of the bodies inside bear the name Goodrich, the first being George Washington Goodrich, who died on November 14, 1884. Six other individuals have joined him, his wife, two of their children who died young, and I'm unsure of the rest of the people who are here. That's all pretty basic, but somehow a legend got started that a vampire is locked within the crypt, and thus it's nicknamed the Vampire Crypt. One of the stories told about the crypt is that a wealthy man from Erie fell ill after returning home from a trip to Romania. He died soon after becoming ill. He was placed in the crypt, but people claimed that he was undead and left the crypt to attack people in the surrounding suburbs. They were found drained of blood and the classic teeth marks were visible on their necks. Another tale claims that a young man broke into the vault and stole a ring off of one of the bodies inside. He bragged to his friends what he had done and told them that he would show them the ring the next day. His friends came over to the house, but when his mother went to fetch him, she found him dead in his room. He was colorless, and his eyes and mouth were frozen open in horror. His ring finger had been ripped off his hand. Is any of that true? Well, perhaps one of the good riches did go to Romania and was buried within this crypt. I don't know for sure. But clearly this person did not come back, having gotten sick because they were bitten by a vampire, died, and then became a vampire themselves. Why is there a V on the outside of this crypt? The explanation seems to be that it's not actually for vampire, but upon closer inspection, it looks like it's a lily with stylized leaves that were very typical for Victorian symbolism. The blackening on the tomb is most likely from rain runoff and pollution. There was a lot of pollution in Erie, Pennsylvania. And if you follow the lines of the blackening, it looks like that's what's happened here. But it sure is fun to believe a vampire lurks within this very cool looking crypt. The other area of interest is known as the Witch's Circle. This can be found in the oldest part of the cemetery by Chestnut Street. The graves here are placed in a circle and are very old. Two of them have darkened stones, just like the vampire crypt. These two graves are said to belong to the two heads of a coven. They died in the late 1800s, and the legend claims that the stones were blackened when Satan came to drag their souls to hell. At least, that's one version. Another claims that the coven practiced their magic in the circle, and that the devil sent a fire from hell to burn up the witches, and the blackening is scorch marks. People claim that you can hear disembodied footsteps, usually behind you, And when you turn, you will see no one, 
except a big black dog who will try to attack you. Thankfully, he disappears right before he chomps. Now let's head over to Iowa. Evergreen Cemetery is found in Vinton, Iowa, and is located at 1002 East 10th Street. The city of Vinton was founded in 1849 and incorporated in 1869. It was named for Honorable Plin Vinton, a state legislator. The graveyard was established in 1853 and has over 8,500 burials. Burials have continued up until our present day. And as I was perusing different websites and looking up information on the cemetery, I found that they do a huge flea market that's held on the adjacent grounds every summer. Does it get any better than that? A flea market right next to a cemetery? You can go get some really cool handcrafted and old stuff and then go over to the cemetery and visit the dead people. There are a couple of well-known burials here. The first is for Civil War Union Brevet Brigadier General James Lorraine Geddes, and I had no idea you could put so many things in front of somebody's name as a title. He was born in Scotland and immigrated to Canada with his family in 1837. He would go to a British military academy and serve in their army for seven years. In 1857, he settled on a farm in Benton County, Iowa. He raised a company of volunteers for the 8th Iowa Infantry when the Civil War started, and he became their captain. He worked up the ranks until he was wounded and captured at the Battle of Shiloh. He spent time in Libby Prison in Richmond. He was released in a prisoner exchange and fought at Vicksburg and Jackson. He became a professor of military tactics and engineering at Iowa State Agricultural College in Ames and later became vice president of the college and treasurer of the institution. He died in 1887 when he was only 59. He is buried beneath a draped obelisk. Buren Robinson Sherman was Iowa governor from 1882 to 1886. He too fought in the Civil War. He served as a state court judge in Iowa in 1865 and as the Iowa State Auditor from 1875 to 1881. He died in 1904 at the age of 68. His stone is granite with an American flag engraved across the bottom. This cemetery apparently has a lady in white who rides on a horse and is seen riding up and down the train tracks that are nearby. One of the areas in the cemetery is for unknown soldiers People have reported seeing strange phenomenon around a military statue here and full-bodied apparitions of soldiers hanging around the area. Vigor Cemetery is located in Stratford, Iowa, which was platted in 1880. Stratford was named for Stratford-upon-Avon in England. Cemetery is believed to have been a burial ground for four Native American tribes originally from 500 B.C. to 1200 A.D. These were the typical mound-type burials. White settlers moved into the area in the early 1800s, and they did a stupid thing. Yep, they moved the bodies, so they could use the burial ground as their own. These moved tribe people would be honored in 1960 when E.H. Hawbaker erected a monument in the cemetery to give recognition to the fact that the Hilltop Cemetery had significance before the settlers came. There are multiple hauntings at this cemetery. And one reason for the hauntings could be the Spirit Lake Massacre of 1857. In the spring of 1857, Wapekut Dakota Chief Inkpaduta and his band of warriors descended on the homesteads near Spirit Lake, which is near the Vigor Cemetery. They massacred a bunch of people because a whiskey runner and a bad guy named Henry Lott and his son killed Inkpaduta's blood brother, Simnatuduta, and Simnatuduta's wife and five children in 1854. Inkpaduta asked the military to punish Lot, but Lot managed to get away. 
Lot was never found and justice was never served. Thus, many people were massacred in 1857 by the Native Americans who were seeking some kind of justice for what had happened to them. And I imagine having their burials desecrated and being pushed off their land. It was just a tension time bomb that finally went off. Now, legends claim that Mrs. Henry Lott was murdered at this time and that her spirit is said to haunt the graveyard and is seen as a full-bodied apparition. At least, that's the legend. The Mrs. Lott that I found here has on her tombstone that she died in 1849, and since the massacre happened in 1857, clearly these two things do not coincide. And what it says on her stone is really interesting and different. I've never seen this before. It said that she died from exposure of Indian raid. So I'm not exactly sure if she was wounded in some kind of a raid, if she lost her home and was left outside. I'm not exactly sure what happened there. She's not buried in the cemetery. She most likely was probably buried near the cabin where she'd lived. She was the first white woman to die in the area. So you've got all of that kind of energy going on with this cemetery. You've got moved bodies. Then you had this massacre at Spirit Lake. There are other hauntings at the cemetery, not just supposedly Mrs. Lott, who, again, I don't know why she would be haunting there since her body's not there, but, you know, it's one of those legends. Full-bodied apparitions of Native Americans are seen here, again, probably because their graves were desecrated. The beating of drums is heard on the air as well. Somebody going by anonymous posted on 5-24-2017, My friends and I went to Vigors many times last summer, and we walked through the whole cemetery to see the really old graves and sat near the memorial of Mrs. Lotz and then sat on a cement bench. First we heard a whistle and then a huge sound of voices as if you were in a stadium. This noise became louder and louder and got closer to us. We decided to move around and continued hearing whistles and drums and sounds mimicking what sounded like Indian calls. We heard screams and you feel such a presence of paranormal activity while being here. It just is very active. Very interesting. Now let's head over to New Orleans, and it doesn't it seem like every cemetery in New Orleans is haunted? This one is called Oddfellow's Rest. Oddfellow's Rest is considered one of the most mysterious graveyards in the world, and there are those that claim it is the most haunted in New Orleans. That's a pretty big claim when you think about all of the cemeteries that we've talked about here in New Orleans so far that have haunts going on. Oddfellow's Rest is located at the corner of Canal Street and City Park Avenue near St. Patrick's Cemetery No. 2. This graveyard was founded in 1847, and its primary purpose was to hold the remains of members of the Grand Lodge of the Independent Order of Oddfellows. The Oddfellows are one of the largest fraternal organizations in the United States. This is a secret society that dates back to the 15th century and started in England. It arrived in America around 1806. Most members were tradesmen with unusual or odd professions. Unlike other secret societies, this one was open to both men and women. The society flourished in America and reached its peak during World War I. Popularity dwindled after that, and by the late 1970s, membership was down from 3 million to about 250,000. Most of the Oddfellows Lodge Halls in the U.S. have been sold off or left abandoned. And I can tell you with the ghost tours that I've done across the country, a lot of them are apparently haunted. Maybe because they used to have real skeletons in them. But I digress. Their burials have a very distinctive symbol, which features three linked chains. This symbolizes the tenets of friendship, love, and truth. Many times the all-seeing eye accompanies the chains along with shaking hands. The dedication ceremony took place on February 29, 1849. 
This was a huge and elaborate event with a funeral procession that was fit for a king. The Oddfellows disinterred the remains of 16 of their members that had been buried elsewhere and put them in a sarcophagus. They brought the remains in a caravan that had two circus bandwagons, one of which was pulled by 16 horses and a funeral car. The single sarcophagus was to symbolize the burial of the cemetery's first occupants. The Oddfellows were not only forward in their thinking about membership for women, but they were against segregation. In many cemeteries, blacks were not allowed to be buried next to whites. The Oddfellows felt they deserved the same honors, so they opened the cemetery to people of color. They had purchased the land for $700 and expanded it with the help of local donations, which they needed to do because the cemetery filled up quickly. In a few short years, the Oddfellows had erected 200 vaults, and the tomb of the Teutonian Lodge, number 10, was also erected. Walls were named for past grandmasters of the order and enclosed the cemetery. Plots were filled up by 1930. As is the case with most graveyards in New Orleans, getting access to this cemetery is difficult. The only real entrance is through the Herb Import Company that's next to the graveyard. You have to ask somebody there to be let in, and it's at their discretion. They give you a number so you can call when you want to be let back out. I've also heard that due to restoration efforts, they do not allow anybody inside, so I'm not really sure you can peruse this one. Perhaps you could sip a tea on the back patio of the Herb Import Company, and you should be able to at least see the graveyard. And it really seems as though it's a sight to see with elaborate epitaphs. Other symbols seen throughout the graveyard include beehives, the mother and her children, the cornucopia, the world, the Bible, the five-pointed star, and the initials I-O of O-F, which stands for the International Order of Oddfellows. Urban legends abound here. Some people claim that zombies roam the grounds. Of course, it's New Orleans, so I'm not surprised. Others declare that they've seen ghost cats. There does seem to be a ghost dog here, and it's accompanied by its owner, whom people call Mr. Mike. He seems to be a friendly spirit and is seen wearing a white t-shirt and dark pants, and he's always walking a large dog. There's no other information about him, so I'm not sure if he was an odd fellow or if he hangs out here for another reason. His dress makes me think that he is not buried here. I don't know for sure, but it seems from the research that I did that they didn't do any more burials here after 1930. So I'm thinking a white t-shirt and dark pants is probably not going to be a part of the dress here. Maybe, but perhaps he's somebody who was killed near the cemetery while he was walking his dog would be my thought. And this is something perhaps residual or since they say he's friendly, he must seem to have some kind of intelligent interaction. And now we'll come up to Asheville, North Carolina and check out Riverside Cemetery. We have one of these in Colorado as well. So I loved seeing that name. Riverside Cemetery is found in Asheville in the Montford Historic District, and this is a large cemetery that holds the dearly departed remains of over 13,000 people. Some of those people are quite famous. Cemetery is located at 53 Birch Street, and the oldest known grave here is from December of 1885. Some burials are so old it's hard to see the inscriptions, and as is the case in all cemeteries, some are unmarked due to a loss of a marker or perhaps a family did not have the means for a stone. This is not only one of the more well-known cemeteries in the state, it's said to be the most haunted graveyard in North Carolina. Riverside Cemetery was established in 1885. The years have blossomed the cemetery into a beautifully matured landscape with meandering roads. This is a great example of a garden cemetery. One fun epitaph declares, Meant well, tried a little, failed much. The Battle of Asheville took place in 1865, less than a mile from the cemetery. 
keep that in mind. Many of the dead are buried here. There are also dead from the other wars buried here as well, including 18 German soldiers from World War I. Not exactly sure what they were doing here. Perhaps they came over on a U-boat or a submarine of some sort? O. Henry was born William Sidney Porter. He was born in 1862 and was raised in Greensboro, North Carolina. He began his working career as a teenager working in his uncle's drugstore. He became a licensed pharmacist but enjoyed spending much of his time sketching the portraits of customers. He moved to Texas hoping to get rid of a cough he had developed. While there, he worked in a bank and was charged with embezzlement. His father-in-law posted his bail, but he ran away to New Orleans and then to Honduras. He eventually returned to Texas when he heard that his wife was dying of TB. She passed away and he served his time in jail. He wrote as a hobby, but pursued it more when he was released and got a job with the Post in Houston. He began his prolific short story writing career in 1902, and he literally wrote hundreds and hundreds of short stories. He was a heavy drinker, and he became quite ill in 1908. He died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1910. Thomas Wolfe was born in Asheville in 1900. He began his writing career at the University of North Carolina, where he attended college. He wrote several one-act plays and edited the school newspaper. He moved to New York in 1923, and this became his home. Three years later, he started his novel, Look Homeward, Angel. This novel was a critical success, but angered some of his friends in Asheville who recognized themselves as characters in the book. It is his most well-known work. He continued publishing works, but his creativity was cut off early. He died at the age of 37 from tuberculosis of the brain in 1938. And I have to say, I had never heard of tuberculosis of the brain until I visited Waverly Hills Sanatorium and was told about it there. I did not know you could get it in the brain, but you sure can. There are claims of multiple hauntings here, and many of those seem to be connected to the Battle of Asheville. The shouts of troops are heard. There's also the disarming exchange of gunfire. An entire regiment of ghostly Confederate soldiers has been seen here as well. A couple of the other ghosts belong to children. Their small apparitions are seen, and the disembodied laughter of children is heard. And the spirit of an old man is seen wandering among the tombstones, but no one is sure which burial he belongs to, and he is mostly seen during the day. Each of these cemeteries has its own unique features. They're all beautiful and peaceful, save for the spirits that seem to be at unrest. Are the legends real? Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. Just another handful of wonderful cemeteries that we have here. I keep thinking to myself, well, I'm not going to find any more, and then I always do. So we'll keep doing these as long as I keep finding them. If you know of a haunted cemetery in your area that may not be as well known, please let me know. I encourage you to check out the website at historygoesbump.com. And if you have some feedback, you can send that to historygoesbump at gmail.com. I heard from Sarah Emmons. She said, just catching up with the last couple of episodes, and I have an addition to the Bluebell Hill story from the Hitchhiking Ghosts episode. I grew up not far from there in Kent and traveled that road a few times. I never saw the ghost, although I looked when I was feeling brave, but I heard the story often enough. People would be driving that road at night, usually in the rain or fog, and a female figure would step out of nowhere in front of the car. Sometimes they managed to swerve, and when they got out to check whether she was all right, they found no one there. Other times they couldn't stop in time and actually felt the impact of hitting something. Wow, that's amazing. They got out in a panic, worried that they had seriously injured or even killed the woman, and looked around. 
in front of the car, under it, even along the roadside in case she'd been thrown. There was never anyone there. Wow, Sarah, thanks for sharing that. Just verifies the stories that uh, we'd heard about Bluebell Hill. That just blows my mind when you hear that something is a spirit and yet there was some kind of impact sound. Makes me wonder, was the car damaged at all? And how do you get an impact sound with no damage to the car and no real body being there? Just amazing. And then I got a couple of emails that are loaded with stories. I'm going to save one of them for next episode, and I'm going to share this one, this episode, from Cheyenne. My first story takes place in an older apartment block in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. My mom, who was about 22 at the time, described it as having individual back entrances to all apartments from fire escape type stairs. We lucked into a first floor suite, no stairs to haul a baby or groceries up was a bonus for my single mom and a blessing for our neighbors who didn't have to listen to my elephant baby steps. Our first night there, my mom put me to bed and began to unpack in another room. A few minutes after she'd put me to bed, certain I was asleep, she heard me crying and abandoned her unpacking to check on me. I was sound asleep, but the crying continued. She followed the cries to the living room and turned on the light, where she saw a man trying to climb through the window. She grabbed the phone, not yet connected, and the knife she'd been using to cut open boxes, held it up and calmly told the man to leave, or she would call 911. Seeing her, he panicked, backed out, and apologized as he continued to back away, claiming he thought she was someone else. Uh Uh-huh, that's why he was coming in through the window, because he knew her? As soon as the window was closed and the man was gone, the crying stopped, and I was still out cold. Wow. What a story. To hear the sound of disembodied crying from a baby and it's not your own is freaky enough, but then to go out there and have a guy climbing through your window... Clearly, this crying baby ghost, whatever it was, was warning her that somebody was trying to come in and do them some harm. Thank goodness that her mom had the wherewithal to grab a knife and tell him, I'm calling 911 if you don't get out of here. I bet she was just scared out of her mind. What a brave woman. Cheyenne continues, we stayed in that apartment without any more intruders, but we definitely weren't alone. My mom would do dishes and come back into the kitchen to find cups and bowls turned right side up after she turned them over to drain and dry. The cat's water dish would be flipped over, water getting everywhere, while the cat was fast asleep in a sunbeam. She would hear me talking and laughing while I was supposed to be alone in my room, and when she would ask who I was talking to, I'd become annoyed when she didn't also see the girl I was pointing to. Oh, My toys would be put away at night, and she'd wake up to them in the middle of the living room. Items would randomly go missing, then find their way back to their original spot. My mom said she asked the girl to put toys away when she was done with them and rarely found them scattered around or out of place again. Eventually, mom would just ask for things back and come into a room to find them exactly where she'd left them before. My mom eventually took to calling the girl Emily and regularly acknowledged her, and we finally moved away, thanked her for potentially saving us that night. I have no idea what building this all happened in or if it even still stands, but I've always wondered why Emily was there and if she finally found peace when we left. I truly hope she did. My second story also takes place in Winnipeg, but occurred a few years later and mostly involves my grandma. I was four or so when this all occurred, and while I don't remember any of it, I could still probably walk you through the apartment from memory alone, and I'm now 27. Way back when, my grandma owned a map and travel store that did lamination and block and dry mounting on the side. She wanted to move near her store, and a friend of hers told her about a place, quite literally, about a block away. The apartment was a large three-story house with the main floor set up as a hair salon and the second and third floor set up as a single apartment. 
My grandmother met with the owner, Piola, at the salon to discuss rent and noticed a strange number of crosses all over the salon, especially above windows, doorways, and mirrors, and couldn't help noticing a bottle of holy water near Piola's station, which she would later learn had been shipped from Jerusalem. Desperately wanting to rent the place, my grandma didn't ask questions, especially not at 350 a month, which even in 1995 was an incredible deal. Yeah, no kidding. Grandma was barely at home the first few weeks she lived in the apartment, but took some time to give friends and family a tour of her new place. No one seemed to notice anything odd, but my grandma would note years later that no one seemed to want to stick around for long. Eventually, my mom and I stopped by for our first visit to the new place. And while my mom was off exploring the second floor, kitchen, living room, and bathroom, Grandma and I went exploring on the third floor, bedrooms. We paused halfway up the stairs at the landing where Grandma showed me a small storage cupboard built into the wall, and she opened the door to show me where she wanted to build me my own little playhouse. As soon as the door opened, I hid behind my grandma and asked her to close it so we could leave. She obliged, and we very briefly explored the bedrooms upstairs, but I was visibly agitated, and we left less than 15 minutes later. Eventually, my grandma and all of her belongings found their way into the apartment, and she began to settle. Her first night sleeping in the master bedroom, she fell asleep easily, but was woken up by loud creaking of the old hardwood floors. She looked toward the doorway, the direction of the noise, and immediately saw the outline of a man in the doorway. She described him as more shadow than substance and was immediately wary of him. Letting out a surprised help, she seemed to have startled the man and he vanished. She assumed she was dreaming or her eyes were playing tricks on her and she easily fell back to sleep. That same night, though, she would be woken up to the feeling of someone crawling into bed behind her and snuggling up against her back. Oh, no. When she eventually mustered up the courage to turn over and face the visitor, the depression in the bed behind her released and the feeling of another body behind her went away. I guess he was just into spooning. The visitor returned several times that night, each time waking her out of a sound sleep. The visitor was not threatening, unlike the shadow of the man, but was new and startling. The next morning, she invited a friend, Wendy, over under the pretext of renting the third room to her office space. What she really wanted was the woman's impression of the apartment, as she was known among friends and family to be sensitive, or as Grandma puts it, a bit mystic. Grandma told her nothing about the apartment or her experiences. Wendy noticed nothing odd about the second floor, but as they began upstairs, Wendy stopped, unprompted, on the landing and placed her hand on the cupboard door there. Something bad happened here, she said. Something happened to a little girl. Ooh, that was the place that Cheyenne got really freaked out when that door was opened. They continued upstairs and Wendy seemed drawn to the master bedroom and indicated there seemed to be someone else there. Wendy asked if Grandma was having nightmares, which prompted Grandma to tell her everything that had happened the night before. Wendy advised Grandma to fill the space with her presence and her belongings, especially anything deep blue in color. Grandma dug out an old blue blanket and placed her only blue flower pot in the bedroom window before bed that night. Despite the blanket and flower pot, Grandma's visitor returned, curling up behind her yet again. Determined not to be afraid this time, she rolled over and found herself face to face with a young girl, about four, with long dark hair wearing a long dress. Oh my goodness. The two stared at each other a moment before what my grandma calls an overwhelming sense of peace washed over her and she fell asleep. Grandma says the girl spent the whole night curled up with her and they slept entirely undisturbed together the whole night and would for many nights after. One day after the flower pot fell off her dresser after many peaceful nights, my grandma went to speak to Piola about the happenings in her apartment. Piola dismissed her at first, but at the urging of her husband, eventually admitted that Grandma was not the first tenant to experience things in the apartment and that they too had had experiences, starting as soon as they began to express interest in purchasing the property. Piola never revealed what happened to her there, but the abundant crosses and holy water finally made sense. 
That same day, my mom and I came for a visit. My mom was upstairs in the sewing room doing some mending and I was busy hanging out with grandma, seemingly having no issues with the place in spite of my reaction during the last visit. Grandma says I seemed to take over the place. She says I drew big, beautiful shapes all down the walk out in front of the house, much unlike my usual chalk doodles, and when we came back inside, I zeroed in on a basket of rocks and shells from Haiti Gwai, an island off the coast of British Columbia, beautiful, formerly known as the Queen Charlotte Islands, a place known for its magic. I had played with the rocks and shells a million times before, but this time took the basket up the stairs to the landing, opened the cupboard door, and placed the basket inside. I told Grandma, they'll be safe here before heading upstairs into her bedroom, where I pulled my scrunchie, a big dark blue one, from my hair and handed it to Grandma, announcing that this will make your bad dreams go away. She swears that after my visit that day, she didn't have another experience in the house. Wow. Isn't that interesting? And Cheyenne was only four at the time? It's kind of interesting that she was the same age as the little girl who died as well. A few months later, my uncle moved in with Grandma for a while. He immediately began to experience the shadow man who would glare at him through the rails of the stairs while he sat in the living room, but chalked it up to a bad high. What he couldn't chalk up to a bad high was watching the shadow man chase the little girl up the stairs where she disappeared into the cupboard on the landing. He saw them both again, but this time followed them up the stairs where the girl ran into the master bedroom, slammed the door and locked it, only to have it kicked in by the shadow man, after which the shadow man disappeared. My grandma remarked about the new damage to the door frame, but didn't make much of it otherwise. Seems the presence of my uncle, a tall, strongly built man, upset the shadow man, who only seemed to be able to act out when my grandma was not present. I firmly believe that the girl sought out spaces filled with my grandma's presence when the shadow man chased her, knowing they were now safe spaces and would offer her protection. Holy cow, so the ghost kicked the door frame and damaged it. That's really interesting. Unlike the other women the girl had attempted to reach out to, my grandma had a willingness and strength to stand up to the shadow man, and I hope that the love and protection my grandma offered her during that time together was enough to help the little girl move on to the next world when grandma moved away. Those are my stories. I hope you enjoyed reading them. Well, thank you so much for sharing those, Cheyenne. Those are some amazing stories. And as I wrote to Cheyenne, and I always write to those of you who share your stories, as an open-minded skeptic, it's those stories that move me away from skeptic to more of the open-minded because it's not just something I'm reading on the internet. It's not some vague disembodied noise, full-bodied apparition. These are like real people that I have contact with that have had some real experiences that they can't explain. And most of the time, they're not telling a whole lot of people about those. They feel comfortable telling me and letting you guys know because we all are open to that kind of thing. If you guys have some experiences that you would like to share, please feel free to email them to me or message me with them and I will share them with the audience. I put up the latest episode of the Death Box podcast. It's featuring hearses. So if you want to find out more about the history of hearses, I encourage you to check that out. Thank you to those of you who've left me reviews over there. Do you have a review to share from Apple Podcasts? This is a very quick, brief one from Madoges43. Boo, five stars. Love hearing this podcast. Well, thank you for sharing that. Want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. And stick around. We have some more of Mort's eulogies coming your way. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery Brittany Lewis. She will be getting a chest tomb. And now we have some more of those poignant eulogies by Mort. 
eulogies by Mort. Matthew Deacon was a gothic man, a creepy and scary story fan, the master of coffin, school and the dead, and now a little tear I shall shed. Shelby Hammond used to work in a haunted bar. Some people might find that bizarre. Mom to McKenna and Baker of dessert. Now I'll put her under some dirt. John Cunha honored heroes on his podcast. Shining a light on things in the past. He had served his country with honor. Unfortunately, now he is a gunner. Bethlehem won the design contest in 2017. Of ghost stories she was quite keen. She hailed from Carolina to the north. Her new home is the cemetery henceforth. Roger was a man of mystery. One name means not much history. He'd been an executive producer for three years. And that makes me shed monster tears. Jennifer Svoboda had lived in Ohio. She was interested in things that were psycho. That includes creepy stuff and true crime. But now she has reached the end of her time. Andrea Valdez had supported HGB for two years. She liked hearing about things from our fears. She came from Arizona that was so dry. And now it's time for us to say bye-bye. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.